Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hey, what is it that you need today? Do you need a professional tune-up? Or do you need a major overhaul, like our intro says there? You know, sometimes it's healthiest just to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, this week I had to um, effectively say goodbye to an old faithful friend of mine, my uh, Isuzu Trooper. You know, I'm a car guy, as I'm sure you recognize if you listen to this at all. And I have an Isuzu Trooper that I've had around for about 10 years now. It's just been an old faithful friend. You know, we jump in it when it's snowy out because we it has four-wheel drive and our cars don't. I use it to run to Home Depot or to make a delivery or help somebody move. Or I use it as a loaner a lot where somebody needs a vehicle and I just tell them, hey, take the Trooper, no problem. We don't really need it. Just um, use it until you get your own situation worked out. But anyway, it had a break in the radiator at the top, spewing water out. And I told the radiator place, I said, you know, before you put a new radiator in it, check out why it's running so rough. Check out why it has so little power that's deteriorated pretty rapidly over the last couple months. So they did, called me with some bad news. It has four cylinders. Cylinder number one had 150 pounds of pressure. Cylinder number two had 70. Cylinder number three had zero. And cylinder number four had about 65. Well, long story short, that means the engine is in pretty rough shape. Possibly a valve job would do it. It may be more than that. It may need rings as well. But all told, with a combination of the radiator and the engine, it's really time to recognize this vehicle has provided the service it's going to provide. Now, you know, it's almost like a divorce when you say goodbye to an old friend like that. I mean, me being a car guy, yeah, I get attached and I hate to just uh, take something to the junkyard or just discard it, but it really is beyond the point of reasonably repairing it. Now, what what if you have a business that's like that? What if you have a job that's like that where you think, oh my gosh, you know, can I just keep pushing this rope along Or should I, in fact, draw a line in the sand and move in a new direction? Now, sometimes it just makes sense to move in a new direction. I mean, I have my own brother-in-law. This was years ago, and he won't listen to the podcast. He won't listen to anything I say, never has. So it's not a danger of him hearing this. But he had purchased a business. It was an accounting business, something he was very proud of. Had his name on the front of the building, beautiful offices in California. And he was struggling with that. Asked me if I would uh, help him look at his business, which I did. I went out there, flew out there, spent a couple days with him, looked at his business. I said, uh, this is what I would recommend. I would recommend that you come in here tonight at maybe eh, maybe 2 a.m. Make sure nobody's around. Take everything that you have into personal possessions, your computer, anything you have in personal possessions out of your office, lock the door and never come back. Well, he was mortified. You know, this is his baby. This is his business. Surely he wasn't going to do that. Well, about a year later, he filed bankruptcy. He had $98,000 on 21 credit cards that he had just kept plowing money into this business that obviously wasn't going in the right direction. And then instead of just having a mild um, blow to his self-esteem, he had a major hit in filing bankruptcy from which he's never really fully recovered. 
Now, you don't want to do that. I mean, there does come a time, sometimes whether it's with a car or with a business, where you just need to say, I'm not going to do this anymore. Keep in mind, people who are extremely successful, rarely, rarely, rarely do they start one thing and just have it be knocked out of the park. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, with Facebook, yeah, that's a rare exception. That's why we talk about it so much, because it's so rare to see that happen. Typically, entrepreneurs are going to start three to four ideas before they find something that really works for them. So you can make modifications once you're doing. You don't have to feel bad about pulling the plug on something you tried that isn't working well. Don't just keep pushing along with something that isn't working well. A couple years ago, Seth Godin wrote a little book called The Dip, and he took the old adage, winners never quit, quitters never win, and just destroyed that. That's not true. Winners do quit. They quit often. They quit quickly. They don't just keep doing something that's not working. Sometimes we get those old adages, which we think are really morsels of the truth, and sometimes I think we assume they came from the Bible or something like cleanliness is next to godliness that we hear, but that's not in the Bible. It's just an old adage. Sometimes we hear those kind of things and they become that kind of gospel truth and they really aren't true. So winners do quit. They don't just keep doing something that's not working. Stephen Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People talked about that a lot. You know, if you leave Nashville and you're headed for Dallas and about an hour from here, you realize you're headed for New Orleans. You don't just tune up the car and drive faster try to be more efficient. No, you recognize you're going the wrong direction. So it's really critical to be able to do that. So whether you're in a job or a business or a partnership, something that is not working, if you need to draw that line in the sand, maybe today's the day to do that. Well, we got some great questions. This is the time each week where we take about 48 minutes, just snag those out of a busy week for all of us to look at these questions that come in that hopefully have some wisdom for all of us together. It helps me to think and research and dig the questions that you ask helps me refine and make my own business application better, as I hope it does for you as we talk through these together. Here's some of the questions. Dan, do you have any additional pointers regarding negotiating salary for jobs with nonprofit organizations? Here's another one we'll hit on. A whistleblower lawsuit was the kiss of death to my career, life, etc. And now it's been four years without a job. Any thoughts? Lady asks, should I cut back in my church volunteering to start my new business? Here's another one. We're going to have some deep questions today. I'm wondering about how an external locus of control affects spirituality. Wow. And another one says, my fatherly instincts tell me to sacrifice my dream for the kids' dreams. My soul screams to pursue a new career. What can I do? What do you do if you have, it looks like you have to choose between your own dreams and the dreams of your kids? What should you do? You may be surprised at my answers on some of these. Well, here's a quotation for us today. To dream alone is fantasy if it doesn't move the heart to act. I love that quote. That, came, that comes from Dan Allender, who's a psychologist who has a brand new book out called Sabbath. There are several books called Sabbath, incidentally, if you look that up, recognize that book titles tend to be repeated over and over, but it's called Sabbath. But he says, to dream alone is fantasy if it doesn't move the heart to act. I love that. I, I talk to a lot of people who have dreams and ideas and wishes and hopes, but they've never 
created a plan of action. They're just out there, those elusive dreams and wishes. Not going to mean much unless it moves you to action. The, there's a brand new book I've already mentioned. Seth Godin wrote The Dip. He's got a brand new book that was just released yesterday called Poke the Box. Now, as with most of his, it's, they've got unusual book titles, and this one has both an unusual title and a very unusual front cover. There are no words in the front cover. It simply has a little icon of a guy kind of moving through, you know, somebody that's actually uh, taking action, and that's all that's on the front cover. But the whole book is about taking initiative. Do something. Start something. Uh, don't just do the old usual routine, normal. Start something. Do something. Take initiative. Great little book. I picked it up. It's a quick read. It's only 82 pages long. You can get it in a couple different formats. Um, uh, you can get a $1 Kindle version of that. I got the physical book because I like to have Seth's books because they're so unique physically. So I like to have them as samples. So I got the real book and I think it was $9.50 through Amazon. You can get a deluxe version for $75. Now he's doing some unique things with this, this being the first of his own publishing company. So uh, you might want to learn about that. The domino effect is what he's calling that. You might want to learn about that. I'll be talking some more about what he's doing, the innovative things he's doing with that publishing company in our upcoming Right to the Bank event. Now, Right to the Bank event for April, I think is sold out. I think Ashley told me that as of yesterday, we were sold out on that. So quite a ways out yet, but uh, obviously a lot of people want to turn their writing into income. If you didn't get into the one in April, you can get into, we still have two more later in this year that you can get into. But I'll be talking about things like what Seth Godin has done to kind of a, take a new innovative approach to the world of publishing. Well, this, uh, this comes from Mark, who says, I believe I'm close to completing a job search, and I'm expecting an offer sometime this week. I've been reviewing 48 days and was curious if you had any additional pointers regarding negotiating salary for jobs with nonprofit organizations. Do the same rules for budgets and salary apply for nonprofits? They, for example, they may specify a salary range in the low to mid thirties, but their budget for the position is in the forty to forty-five thousand dollar range. Now he's he's pulling that because I I I lay that out in forty-eight days that a company would be foolish to offer you their maximum right out of the gate. So if they have forty to forty-five thousand dollars in their budget, they may offer you you know thirty-eight or thirty-six as a starting point, assuming that you're going to negotiate. Now, if you don't know how to negotiate, then you may leave a lot of money on the table, which a lot of people do. But um, he's asking, is this true for a nonprofit? I want to make sure I'm not undercutting my worth while respecting the work that the organization does, knowing they may not have the resources to offer me a larger salary because they are a nonprofit. Or is that simply my perception? Thanks for your help, Dan. Your work has really helped me in this process of finding work in a life I believe I will love. Well, Mark, a nonprofit, when Jim Collins wrote Good to Great, he had a lot of people contact him saying, how do we measure our effectiveness if we are not a for-profit organization so we aren't as concerned about the bottom line as a measurement of how well we're doing? Well, Jim Collins came back, and of course his previous book was Built to, or, or Built to Last, and then he wrote Good to Great. He says it really doesn't matter. If you're a nonprofit, you still have to have three components in place. 
you have to know what is it that you are passionate about? What is it that you do extremely well, perhaps better than anybody else? And then the third component is what's your economic model? How's this going to generate income? So it doesn't matter even if you're a nonprofit. And this is, this is something that's a major flaw of a lot of people who are drawn to nonprofits. You know, a lot of people think, well, you know, I can't see how this is going to work financially. So I'll just make it a nonprofit and hope that other people give me money. That's a pretty poor premise on, upon which to start any kind of an organization. If it doesn't hold water on its own, you know, why is it really a good idea to pursue? And the other thing is, you know, real businesses are self-correcting. If a business isn't generating income, it's going to fold. Nonprofits, including churches, tend not to work that way. If it's not working well, they just ask people to give more money. There's some real fallacies in how we tend to look at nonprofits. And of course, there's a whole lot of correction that's been going on the last couple of years as giving has dropped precipitously. And as we've been seeing the explosion of things like ethical capitalism, social entrepreneurship, some other models that are filling that space where they are doing good, worthwhile, godly, humanitarian, green, however you want to frame it, work, but they are not depending on a nonprofit model to fund it. They're figuring out how can we make this thing sustainable. So now that being said, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but it relates to Mark's question. Don't assume that a nonprofit doesn't have the money to pay you well. I mean, I have a friend who just resigned recently as as the CEO of a nonprofit. Now, I won't mention the name of it because it's a big one and well-known, but he was making about $650,000 a year as CEO of that organization. Now that's not too shabby, but most people knowing that it's a nonprofit probably assume that he was making, you know, $40,000. No, they have tons of money to work with because the way it's structured. Don't assume that a nonprofit is just running on a shoestring, that they don't have any funds. If it's run well, they ought to have the funds to attract talent and pay talent comparable to what you could make in any other organization. Well, let me move on. Carissa says, do they, now this is another one. I put this right back to back because it's, it relates to the same thing. Do the three steps of a job search regarding its aggressiveness still apply when pursuing a position with Christian nonprofits or being a nonprofit or donation based company? Can that actually backfire since they have limited resources and run on a minimal staff? Well, again, there's some real underlying assumptions here that I don't think are accurate. I mean, there are nonprofits that are extremely profitable and there are nonprofits that are not run well. And there are, non, there are nonprofits that have a lot of money. There are nonprofits that don't have any money. I mean, but we can't make blanket assumptions just because something is a nonprofit that they're not going to pay their people well and that they have no funds from which to draw because it's just not true. So approach it in the same way as you would with the value you're going to bring to the organization, no matter how they're structured corporately. If they're a poorly one run for-profit business, they don't have the funds to hire good people. So how they're structured legally is really not the key issue. You want to make sure that you're part of an organization that is run well. And if it's run well, then it ought to have the funding to make the things work that they're trying to accomplish. Jeff says, Dan, uh, just as Jesus said, he came to set the captives free. Your book helps people become free from the slavery of work they hate. 
There are countries worse than America in terms of work, and those countries desperately need the message you provide in 48 days. Please consider translating your book to help them. I've been recommending your book to friends of mine in Japan. They listen to your podcast and order your books through Amazon, but the English translation is tough for them. Anyway, it's a new market for you to think about, but the same message and purpose you currently have. Also, it'd be great if Dave Ramsey did the same thing. You guys are both setting people free from bondage. You guys message have helped me in my faith by showing me truth versus lies. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate your comments. Now, let me just kind of give you feedback on what happens when Dave or I work with a major publisher on our books. The publishers are responsible for translations. I really have no input on that at all. But it's interesting. It's always thrilling to me when I get copies of books, my books that have now been translated into other languages, which 48 Days has, incidentally. 48 Days is available in Spanish and then also in a Spain translation from Spain, which is not the same Spanish as spoken in Mexico, as an example. It's in complex Chinese, simple Chinese, Portuguese. A couple of weeks ago, I got copies of it and I couldn't quite make out what it was and finally figured out it was Romanian. So 48 Days has been translated into a lot of different languages um, and they're always negotiating to have that done again that's kind of behind the scenes not something I'm involved with personally but it is spreading and I would suspect is in probably 10 or 12 different languages at this point but thanks thanks for your comments and your affirmation Benjamin says Dan I've read both your books just finished the four-hour work week based on your reading recommendations now I am looking for opportunities for my own meme so I can dispose of my hour each way commute. Considering the hoops you jumped through to license taking care of business for your podcast, it struck me there should be a better way. Having a big hit song on the podcast can really add a lot in a couple of dimensions and it seems like something many people would find desirable. I'd like to create a one-stop shop website for licensing hit songs for the podcast intro outro niche. My design would be to allow for use of up to a certain number of seconds for a song and then to license it. Um, If it were priced at $120 annually, as an example, uh, perhaps Sony or other publishers would be willing to accept $70 to $80 annually. Three questions. Does anyone else approach you about this? What do you think of the idea? Would you be willing to share your Sony contact information? Well, yes, 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 yes to all those. Uh, um, A lot of you know that, yeah, I'm using the old Bachman Turner Overdrive song, Taking Care of Business. You know, when when the the show first starts, you know how that takes off. Taking Care of Business. I love that intro. It's become kind of part of, you know, part of our show. Um, And to get that, I was determined to have some kind of an actual agreement rather than just continuing to use it. Now, there's a whole lot of podcasts out there and Internet programs of all sorts that are using music without having real licensing for that. In that situation, and I'll give you just a real quick overcap, I contacted ASCAP, which is one of the organizations that you pay if you have a restaurant, as an example, you're going to have music playing 
you pay ASCAP uh, annual licensing fee to play music. So you can play radio stations or whatever you want to, recorded music. It's uh, just a generic one-time umbrella licensing fee. That really wasn't applicable for what I was doing because I'm using 58 seconds of that song at the beginning and then about 33 seconds at the end. So I went directly to Sony based on the recommendation from ASCAP Worked with them over about a four-month period. Finally came up with an agreement where I have the rights to use that on my podcast. I paid $100 a year for the licensing, which I was thrilled with. Now, what you're asking is, are there organizations that are doing it? Yes. It just happens that particular song, I needed to go directly to the publisher. But there are organizations that are doing exactly what you're talking about. So before you try to gear up for offering this service, you ought to know about the Harry Fox Agency. That's probably the biggest one. So if you just look up harryfox.com, you're going to see that you can get licensing rights for any kind of song that you want. Now, they haven't focused traditionally on just the podcast niche or where you may only want to use like 60 seconds of a song, one particular song, but they do licensing and certainly cover the kind of issue that you're talking about. Another one is green light. So if you go to greenlightrights.com, you'll see again there, you can ask for rights to any kind of song that you want to. Same thing is true for movies. If you go to wing clips or real classics or just clips.ws, I mean, you can license things for commercials for use on YouTube videos that you're doing. So there are a lot of organizations doing what you're doing. I think probably, in answer to your question, Benjamin, to, to set up a new business to do it just for the podcast market alone. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's so much happening in that arena. I think they probably, probably I was going to say that may be too restrictive uh, to create a business, but I suspect that it's not. With the explosion of podcasts, I would think maybe it is a reasonable approach. So if you put yourself in the podcast world and let it be known that's what you're doing, I think that is a reasonable business model. Daryl says, Dan, I was a nationally certified human resources professional. Ran into corruption at my job. I attempted to fix it with management. Then I got fired. Then I got mad. And then I filed a wrongful termination, a whistleblower lawsuit. I lost the lawsuit. It was the kiss of death to my career, my life, etc. It's been four years now without a job. Any thoughts? Thank you. Well, this is a tough situation, obviously. And I um, agree with you that you're in a position that you are. However, I think you can today draw the line in the sand. Don't think that being fired is closing the door for you. I mean, just don't allow your thinking to accept that because I don't think that's true. If you were a certified human human resources professional, then you still are. It doesn't take that away from you. The fact that you were fired and that you then filed a lawsuit, you lost the lawsuit. Yeah, it's a lot of negative energy there and a lot of negative things that have happened, obviously. But those things are not obstacles for you moving forward. Everyone has obstacles to overcome. You know, I mean, I run into people all the time who are confident they're too old, they're too young, they're too short, they're the wrong color, they have the wrong degree, they have no degree. I mean, on and on, everybody has something. And typically, the obstacle is much bigger between your own two ears than it is out here in reality. I mean, if 
somebody, if, if you were interviewing, as an example, what, in order for somebody to know these things about your past, they would have to do a reference check. Now, certainly if they Google and blah, 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 that, but here's the thing. You interview, you go through that process, companies rarely, if ever, check references until they've already made a decision that they want somebody. So, you know, you ought to be way down the process in terms of having great interviews and having job offers before this ever comes up. If you are at that point where a company has already interviewed, you already decided they really want you, then you can address this. Then you ought to be able to explain this if in fact it comes up. But I really doubt that it's going to. I worked with a gentleman one time who had been fired as a facilities manager and it was a very acrimonious firing, parting of the ways. Uh, they didn't think too highly of him, and he didn't think too highly of them. Um, he went on, and it was about 16 months that had passed, and he couldn't get a job offer. Well, he was convinced that the reason he wasn't getting a job offer is because he was getting a bad reference from his former employer. And I said, there is no way in the world. It, it, it was He was... He was a facilities manager for a very reputable university. I said, there's no way in the world. They know better than that. They are not going to be bad-mouthing you. He said, oh, yes, they are. That's why I'm not getting a job. I picked up the phone and called his former employer. And it was one of these just perfect timing things. I got right through and actually talked to the gentleman who was a supervisor, the department head, who had fired him. I ask him questions, the leading questions, but I said, I'm interviewing this gentleman, considering foreign position. And I went right through, you know, was he responsible? Did he do what he expected of him? Nothing but positive responses. You know, what was his term of employment? They told me, I said, would you hire him again? And the guy said, if there were a position that matched his skills, we'd be happy to consider him. There was absolutely nothing negative and it blew this guy away because it totally took the wind out of his thinking that the reason he wasn't getting a new job was because he was getting bad references. No, he wasn't. He needed to move on and realize that wasn't a real obstacle except as it uh, played out in between his own two ears. And you need to do the same. Okay, Charity says, well, let me, let me move on. Let's, Richard says, Dan, I'd love to start a small landscaping business on the side, but I can't figure out how to do it, being that I work Monday to, through Friday, um, 9 to 6 o'clock. Some Saturdays, I'm not in a position to quit this job to get it started. Any ideas would be appreciated. Well, if you're going to make a transition into a new business that is time and labor intensive, yes, you have a challenge. And you can't do landscaping you know, from six o'clock to midnight, it has to be during daylight hours. So you have that additional complicating factor. A lot of businesses that people want to start today, you can create a transition because you can do it in discretionary hours that don't interfere with your work time. In your case, you know, you really are going to have to figure out a way to make this transition. So here's how I would do it. Landscaping business is not something that has a long startup time. You can go out this afternoon and talk to people or right here at the spring of the year, you can go out and talk to people and line up, you know, 15 jobs this afternoon. So there's not a long lead time. You just need the time to focus on doing that. What I would do is save up the money from your current job until you have a 30 day cushion. Now you, you didn't hear me say, you know, you need a year's savings 
stocked away, that may be unrealistic to ever get to that point. I'm just saying, give yourself 30 days. Because I think if you really are a candidate, if you really have thought through carefully this landscaping business, you have a business plan, you know who your prospective customers would be, you know what the financial projections are and what has to happen for this to work. If you've done those things, which you certainly should have, then I'm saying give yourself a 30-day cushion, terminate what you're doing, and go do it. I don't think that's risky if you've done that, and I think you can launch this and get off and running that quickly. Mike says, Dan, I'm a regular podcast listener. Listen to your audiobook, 48 Days to the Work You Love. You are one of the nine people, both current and historically, whom I find to be inspirational. Golly, I'm curious who the other eight are. Not just because of the extraordinary success you've earned in your profession, but because of the focused and genuine way you conduct yourself. I would be interested in your answer to one question I had about you. You regularly tell listeners to do what you're passionate about, and then money will follow. Whether your passion brings a lot or little money, how would you rank the importance of effective money management skills? What I know of your past success has inspired me to also strive in conducting myself and my business in a manner that helps others in an area I'm passionate about. I publish a small magazine called The Quarter Roll that includes stories and articles that show readers ways to make themselves and their families less vulnerable to the whims of the economy, life circumstances, or employers. Well, how important do I think money management skills are? I think they're very important. I don't think it's the most important characteristic, but a lack of money management skills is certainly one of the top three killers of small business. So yeah, I think it's very, very important. However, I'll be quick to add, that's not one of my strengths. I'm not exceptionally good in that arena. I don't enjoy it. I'm much more interested in casting the vision and getting out here and speaking and writing and inspiring people, giving hope and encouragement. And I just simply have enough confidence at this point that if I do that well, the money's going to show up and it's going to show up even in unexpected ways. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that I'm just cavalier about it, that I'm just, I just hope things work out. My son-in-law is my business manager he spent six years as a branch manager with BB&T Bank. He knows finances way better than I do. He is on top of everything that happens here financially. In addition to Nathan, I also have a bookkeeper. Her name is Bonnie. Um, she was here yesterday. We spent a lot of time going over are already starting to go over February, even though we were just one day beyond February financials. I mean, we track things really carefully. She has extensive chart of accounts and she knows exactly where every penny is spent, how to categorize it and how to pull the reports together. Those two people have money management skills that far surpass my own. So it's just like one more area in my business that I handle like I do everything else. If I'm not strong in that area, I get somebody whose skills far surpass my own to do that and do it with excellence. I don't try to make myself good at it. So is it important? Absolutely. It's incredibly important. Does every entrepreneur have to do it well? No. If you don't do it well, link arms with somebody, get somebody whose skills surpass your own in that area, have them handle that so it is being handled well. Hope that wasn't a sidestep. That's that's how I handle it. Again, I I mean, financial statements, P&Ls bore me to death. 
That's not what gets my attention. That's not what gives me a thrill. I mean, I've had some incredible years in terms of income, but I mean, that, that doesn't, you know, keep me awake at night and make me more excited than anything in the, in the world. It's just a byproduct of doing something that I love. Uh, the money seems to just kind of appear. Richard says, Dan, in my quest for self-development, now, this is a really interesting one. And uh, I have a very brief question, but it certainly could prompt a lengthy discussion in response. Richard says, Dan, in my quest for self-development, I just found out about internal and external locus of control and how it affects our lives. I'm wondering about how an external locus affects spirituality. Now, I want to, at the outset here, say that I think this is more of a personality issue and how you're wired than it is a spiritual maturity issue. Let let me just kind of lay out what this means. You know, people with an internal locus of control are going to believe that they're primarily responsible for the outcomes in their lives. You know, so somebody with an internal locus of control is going to be more self-reliant and they believe, you know, nothing can hold them back but themselves. Now, these are people that usually, you know, do start things. They accomplish things, get things done. Now, those with an external locus of control believe that, you know, forces outside of themselves affect their success. So they're going to be much more likely to see their success as being dependent on fate, luck, the economy, the political powers in place, or even God. Now, this is really, you know, this is, um, can get real dicey theologically. And I don't know that I really want to go there because I don't want to frame this as a right or wrong. And I don't think that we can frame this in a way that as you become more mature, you move in one direction. With your question here, Richard, you know, how does an external locus affect spirituality? An external locus in some ways, you could make a case for saying that if you have an external locus of control, you know that God is sovereign, God is in control, God you know, controls everything. But this is where I think it gets a little thin in terms of the way some people play that out. What that does is that then removes a person from any personal responsibility. So if I run the tires on my car totally bald and then on the way to an important meeting I have a flat tire it's easy for me to say well God must have ordained that God must have planned that God must have wanted that to happen so it's not really my fault no I should have been watching and should have corrected the fact that my tires were bald so now I it's probably no secret you know I tend to be have much more of an internal locus of control and people who are Christians may cringe at that thinking, well, you know, I, Dan just wants to be in the driver's seat, thinks that he controls everything and rather than really uh, acknowledging, you know, God's control that that's where we can't just have it be one way or the other. I think that we have to accept responsibility. I think that we have to take initiative uh, this morning in my guys group, we were talking about uh, Isaiah forty thirty one, a verse that most of us are familiar with, you know, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as the eagles, they shall run and not faint, walk and not be weary, so on. What we often think is that 
Waiting on the Lord meaning means sitting on a stump with our arms folded, gazing heavenward. That's not what the word wait means in that application. The word wait there comes from the same word from which we get waiter. It means to be busy doing what you know needs to be done. Well, to me, that means if you need a job, don't just sit at your kitchen table praying about it. Yeah, that's fine. Then get out the door and do something. Go find 30 to 40 companies that would be potential matches for what you need. Do an aggressive job search. Contact them repeatedly. Go back until you find a position. I mean, taking that aggressive kind of action, you know, to some people may seem like, well, that's too much of an internal locus of control. Now, I don't know if my answer helps you at all. You know, how does it affect spirituality? It's just kind of a reflection of our personality. But uh, I think we can have the pendulum swing too far in either direction. Well, Sean says, uh, I have a job opportunity in San Francisco, but the salary is not much of a breadwinner for that area. $90,000 a year. I've only gotten by freelancing from home. Would it be a good decision to take the opportunity, even though our housing costs are going to be at least 50% of my income? Absolutely not. I mean, if you really assume housing costs are going to be 50% of your income, then it doesn't matter what the income is. The math just doesn't work. Uh, Don't take a job. I mean, if it's 90,000, now personally, I'm not sure why it would take $45,000 of your, well, I guess that's not unreasonable in San Francisco, but no, that's, that's not a good idea at all. I mean, the rule of thumb ought to be that your mortgage payment or rent, including utilities, shouldn't be more than 25% of your income. If it is, you're going to start borrowing from some other areas that you probably want to develop. But when it hits 50%, nah, it's not going to work. You know, I, I don't know what you're doing, but if you're getting by freelancing, figure out how to do that better. Figure out how to up your rates or get more work or market yourself better, but use that as a springboard to higher income. Don't cripple yourself by taking a job where you think you have a guaranteed salary, but it's not enough to give you a reasonable life anyway. That's not a good prognosis. Nah, don't do that. Pam says, Dan, I love all your business ideas, your 48 business ideas. My husband told me about your book and website. I was wondering if you could point me in the right direction about writing a business plan about real estate. I didn't know if you have a sample of one or not. I'm going to get my licenses this year and want to do it correctly when I do and have all my ducks in a row. I've been dreaming about this for a long time now, and now is my time. In fact, my husband and I will eventually do this together, and we're very excited about it. Thanks in advance for your help, Pam. Pam, if you go to 48days.com and just look for useful resources, go down to the 48 Days Worksheets. You'll find there a business plan that you can open and fill in. Take a couple hours to just go through that. It's a free resource. Just fill it out. It's really not any different if you want to be a real estate agent, be successful in doing that. Or if you want to start a window washing business or the corner bakery, the principles for doing a business plan are the same. Now, this is not something that's going to require lots and lots of time. It's not going to be an 85 page document that you take to the bank to get a loan, but it just helps you conceptually think through what is my business? You know, how are other people who are doing it well doing it? 
what happened to people who were doing it or thought they were and now they're not doing it anymore? Who is my target audience? Am I going to do work with, you know, residences that are in the $150,000 to $250,000 range? Or am I going to work with commercial projects where I'm selling storefronts? I, I had uh, some clients years ago in California who did nothing but hospitals. They were real estate agents, a couple guys. All they did was hospitals. And you think, wow, you know, is there enough activity? Yeah, as a matter of fact, there is. And being this specialist, they were the go-to guys in that arena. Well, they'd only need to negotiate one or two deals a year to make extremely large incomes because that was their specialty. So just work through the business plan. Yeah, you can pull the one right off our website, 48days.com worksheets, and fill that out to get what you need to do. This comes from Joseph, who says... Your book is too good. Well, thanks. Weeks of introspection, identifying my passion, but it'll need a degree. I'll need a degree with two teenagers who will be starting college soon. Thinking of paying for three tuitions makes me faint. My fatherly instincts tell me to sacrifice my dream for the kids. My soul screams to pursue medical illustration. What should I do? You know, I I spoke just this last Monday night to a large gathering. I had a gentleman wait and wait and wait and wait afterward. He wanted to be the last one to talk to me. And they were at that point turning the lights off and he walked me out to the car. He has been in high level positions, but currently is at the bottom of the barrel. He's in the tank financially, emotionally, and certainly career wise. But here's some of the things. I mean, his glasses are out of date, you know, clothes need to be updated. You know, you can tell this guy's really struggling. And he says, I just got to find something. He says, I've got a son at Purdue. That alone is $60,000 a year. I've got a daughter at another college who's flunking out, but he wants to keep paying for her college. And I said, why would you do that? Who told you that that should be your number one priority? You have two grown children. You have nothing. You know, recent divorce, he has nothing. Said, Who told you that should be your number one priority? And frankly, I don't think it should be. I don't think he should sacrifice his own well-being for the sake of his kid. Explain to your kids, your grown kids, I've done what I could up to this point. I'm delighted you're doing well. We need to figure out a way for you to continue at a $60,000 a year school. If in fact, that's what you want to do. If it is, then let's figure out a way for you to do that. But it's not going to come from daddy writing checks anymore. That's not an unhealthy kind of thing. And a lot of parents are guilted into doing that and do it to their own detriment. Now, and that's what it sounds like here. If you have teenagers that are going to be starting college soon, sit down with them, help them figure out how to do that. There's a young guy who's very involved in 48days.net who is, his name is Zach Freeman. You can look him up. Zach, I know his parents well. His parents are not in a position to pay for fancy colleges for him, and they told him that in advance. So the, the summer in between his junior and senior year in college, Zach spent that summer applying for scholarships and grants. He got $70,000. 
$70,000 total. Now that's not going to send him to Purdue for four years at $60,000 a year, obviously. So then he adjusted where he was going to go based on the money that he had raised. So he gets $70,000. So he has elected to go to the University of Tennessee. It's in-state tuition. So he's going to University of Tennessee. But the $70,000 he's budgeted to cover his entire four years tuition, board, living expenses, and everything. And now he's speaking and has put together his experiences to raise that money in a nice little book. He's selling the book and he's stashing that money away as his fund for getting his master's degree. He's just a freshman in college. I mean, what a great plan. Why couldn't any kid do this? I mean, he applied for scholarships where he was only one of three that applied. You know, it may have only been $1,000, but he couldn't believe the money that was laying around where nobody took the time to apply for it and just found it like that. There's got to be other ways to do this. Now, do I think then that you should sacrifice your own dreams and just put those on the back burner? Don't do anything because you have these teenagers coming along? No, I don't. I think this ought to be something where, I mean, ultimately you're going to end up resenting it if you do that. I mean, is that the kind of daddy these kids are going to want around? No, you want to be able to maximize what you're doing, your own life as well. Now, if you're saying, gee, you want to buy a bass boat and you want to go to Hawaii on vacation and you want to buy a new Beamer this year, I mean, then maybe your priorities are a little out of whack. But if you know that your own career is off track and you know that you can make this adjustment by getting another degree yourself, where it'll really bring in alignment and authentic fit for you so you can do work that's meaningful, fulfilling, and profitable ultimately, I mean, that ought to serve as a great example and a great testimony to your kids for how this can be done well. And I would think they'd be happy to have that example. So no, I think you ought to make your own plans if this, in fact, is a fit, if your wife is supportive of what you're talking about here, and then just look at, okay, how can we make all of this work? Look for what Covey calls and solutions, not either or. Usually we will very quickly look at situations like this saying, well, either I can help the kids through college or I can go to college and they can get stuck in a ditch. Now, look for solutions that would allow you to both do everything that you want to do. It may be in a process where they are encouraged to go to in-state schools where the tuition is a third of what it's going to be somewhere else. And you do the same for your degree, or they may be encouraged to go to the university of Phoenix, get an online degree, which cuts the cost even more. Perhaps you could do the same for yours. I mean, look, start looking at ways confident that you can accomplish everything that you want to accomplish instead of thinking that somebody's going to be left holding the short end of the stick. Well, let me do one more here and we'll wrap up. Lauren says, if a job posting specifies how they want you to contact them, for example, submit resume online, no phone calls, please, then is it still okay to do the three critical steps of a job search that I lay out in 48 days? Introduction, letter, resume, phone follow-up, phone call. Do you follow directions at the risk of not standing out? Well, you know, I hope that your answer is implicit in the question you ask. Lauren, when you say, do you follow directions at the risk of not standing out? I hope that's enough insight to give you the answer that we're looking for. If you know that following directions puts you at risk for not standing out, 
Now, now again, I hesitate to say, you know, just don't follow directions, but what you're talking about are some guidelines laid out by the recruiting company here. Why do they lay guidelines out like that? They do that to make it easier for them to keep all the cards in their table. Are they offended if someone does call or shows up at the doorstep? My goodness, depending on the position, they're going to see that as taking initiative and exactly the kind of characteristics they want. If somebody is applying for a sales position, I have a friend who's a recruiter here in Nashville and he recruits for sales positions. This is how he does it. He'll have you come in and so I say, Dave, you're really a great applicant. Boy, things are looking good. It's Friday afternoon. Tell you what, uh, I think we're going to move forward with this. You call me Monday afternoon and I'll give you what the next steps are to get you on board here. Man, you spend the weekend telling everybody, golly, it's in the can. I'm going to get this job. This is so cool. You're celebrating already. Monday afternoon, you call back. Gee, no answer can't get a response. Tuesday, you call, gee, no answer. What is your thinking likely to go to? Your thinking is likely to say, ah, they had another candidate. They made another decision. I'm not the one they chose after all. You hang your head. Okay, you're back in the game again. Now, my friend, the recruiter purposely ignores the first three callbacks. Purposely, he's recruiting salespeople. He wants to know, are you a salesperson? or not. If you're not willing to be persistent in securing the position, you probably aren't going to be persistent in securing sales with customers either. It's not the kind of person he wants on board. You can be creative, go outside the line, ignore directions, whatever, when you're looking for a job. Be creative, do the things that are going to make you a great candidate. Well, we're taking care of business. Hey, Dan Miller here. I love this time with you all, the listeners. Keep those questions coming in. Just go to the podcast link on 48days.com to submit your question or just shoot a question to ask Dan at 48days.com. Enjoy the process. We're at the spring of the year. It's a great time to be planning out what you want to accomplish this year as you continue to find or create work that's meaningful, purposeful, and profitable. Believe that it's there for you.